0: Well, my next guest is back. Award-winning presidential historian H.W. Brands returns to West Michigan, We're calling him a regular, wearing the hat of Howenstein Center Scholar-in-Residence. Much on his plate. We get the details here in studio. H.W. Brands, welcome back.
1: Delighted to be here. Glad
0: you're here. Gleaves Whitney, executive director of the Hauenstein Center Presidential Studies. Glad you're here as well. Thanks, Shelley. You're always polite and you say, don't turn my mic on, it's all about HW, and that's fine, but uh, you need to remind me of the website and the contact information, so, and much, much more. Reminder, Mr. Brands, you, Professor Brands, professing, what, history at the University of Texas at Austin? You got snow on right. the ground out there?
1: <laughs> snow on the ground. No, I was on the Gulf Coast <laughs> day before yesterday, and it was sunny and warm, and the wind was blowing through the palm trees. And now I'm back where there's winter on the ground.
0: Yes, there is. Gleaves, you bring uh, Dr. Brands back again. Why?
2: Well, he's an award-winning historian, as you mentioned, Shelley, and he has been with us for five, six, this is going to be his sixth major event with Grand Valley and the Howenstein Center, and every time he has just enthralled audiences. He combines two qualities that I always look for in a historian. First of all, he, his competence, obviously. He's got tremendous depth and insight into American history. He can tell a good story. That's the other thing. And well, I should say one other thing. For audiences who get to come and see him personally, he's so approachable. He's a, he's a scholar who actually can talk to, to people wherever they are in life, and that's one of the great qualities Bill has, and we appreciate that about him.
0: Equal, e- Equal time.
1: Yeah, well, please—you've embarrassed me again. <laughs> now I'll just have to live up to those kind of things that you said. And he
0: called you Bill. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So H.W. There must well, be William. Well, Henry William.
1: So like- yeah, my father was Henry. I'm the Bill in the family. That's right.
0: Good. That man in the White House uh, is uh, the title. What, somewhat of your series? Yes.
1: I've got six lessons about the presidency that I've learned, and uh, I've learned, or at least that I've inferred from my study of presidents. And. One lesson is going to form each lecture. So, The first one this morning is the half-step rule about timing is everything, and we'll go forward from there. So any prospective presidents who want to come listen to me, this will be your, your playbook.
0: A, I, I do want to go through some of the specifics. We certainly do have time, although you do have to be uh, at your podium at 10 o'clock. Gleaves, uh, this is um, for the public and for our our students et cetera?
2: Absolutely. It's for anybody who's interested in understanding our country better. You know, the presidency, and Bill knows, and writes about this so well, the presidency is a great lens through which to see American history. And so anybody out there, especially in a, an important presidential year such as this year, who wants to get more insight into the process of making a president and of doing the presidency, it's, a, it's an enormously difficult Job, obviously uh, H. W. brands is just uh, masterful in his presentations. anybody's welcome he've
1: said is actually right here in that i'm going to be talking nominally about the presidency, but really it's about the development of American political culture and the development of the United States because presidents always respond to the demands of the public. And what was appropriate for a president 200 years ago is no longer the case. And if you look at the evolution of the presidency, what you're really tracking is the evolution of American society and of Americans' expectations regarding their political leadership.
0: I do want to get through the rundown, but let's stay on this topic of the secret of success of of a good president. What would that be?
1: Well, there are several secrets of success, and needless to say, I can't give them all away the here. <laughs> but right. the main thing is you have to remember what the office is all about and who you work for. You work for the American people, and if you can keep that in mind, if you can understand what the American people need, what they want, and what they can be led to believe, then you're halfway to success.
0: Speaking of scholar-in-residence, you're a scholar of Franklin Delano Roosevelt.
1: I'm working, in fact, I'm completing, I hope, a biography of Franklin Roosevelt that will be published this fall. And it's got the title that I hope will be provocative, A Traitor to His Class, The Privileged Life and Radical Presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt.
0: And um, nice article by Pat Schellenbarger in uh, the Grand Rapids Press this uh, uh, this past weekend. I mean, you literally, she quotes you as saying, President Roosevelt potentially having what is needed even for today's president?
1: There's something that every president, every successful president has to have, and that is the ability to connect to the American people. Roosevelt connected with the American people via radio. That was the principal medium of his day. Presidents today have a slightly different task, and I, I would argue that it's harder to connect with voters, with people across the television than it is by radio. Radio is a peculiar medium, and you're fully aware of this. That radio goes with you. Radio gets inside your head. With the radio, the listener has to imagine who is speaking. And it's much more of an active kind of medium because you really do imagine. When Roosevelt gave what were called his fireside chats, he would sit in front of the microphone in the White House and 25 million Americans would sit in their kitchens, in their living rooms, and they would listen to Roosevelt speak. And they could imagine that he was speaking directly to them. As a result of this, when Roosevelt died, The entire country felt that it had lost a relative, a favorite uncle, a grandfather, a father. America went into mourning after the death of Franklin Roosevelt in a way that has been almost unprecedented.
0: And you are working on a biography.
1: That's it, yes. And if all goes well, the biography will be out this fall.
0: Gleaves, you uh, bring Andrew Jackson uh, text in. Yes, that's
2: Bill's most recent book. And again, it's masterful. Uh, This series of books that H.W. Brands has produced is really a comprehensive survey of American history. As he himself will say, he has selected his subjects very carefully to give readers who follow his writing this overview, but that drills deep with these great stories and insights into American history. And I always carry this around now because since we have Bill this week with us, we want people (laughs) to see it.
0: Come a long way since the, the math lectures, huh?
1: Yes. I'll, well, interestingly enough, though, my younger son is taking classes at Austin Community College, where I used to teach math, and I've walked by those old math classrooms and other people are in there doing what I used to do 20 years ago.
0: That's right. We'll spend a little more time on that. Let's get into present time. Gleaves, uh, share with me a bit of the rundown of what we uh, expect from our scholar-in-residence over these next three days.
2: Well, we're going to start fast at 10 a.m. Uh, in the University Club in DeVos Center here downtown. We're going to have the, the first talk. And then this evening, over at the Ford Museum Auditorium, we're going to have our second talk uh, there at the Gerald R. Ford. Seven thirty tonight. Uh, talk called "Loyal to a Fault," subtitled "I love this: Why nice people make lousy presidents."
1: <laughs> it's true. You have to. You have to have a sharp edge if you want to be a good president.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at how to how to follow up on that. But that pretty much says it all in in your comment. The sharp edge tomorrow.
2: Tomorrow at 9 a.m., uh, also probably is going to be in the University Club uh, at uh, 9 a.m. there, University Club, that's Tuesday, and then at 2.30 in the afternoon, we're going to move the venue out to Allendale, Cook-DeWitt Center. Cook-DeWitt, we're going to have uh, Bill at 2.30 talking uh, about um, <laughs> about foreign policy, in essence.
0: Let's go half back back half a step That 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Sam Goldwyn's Secret. Here's the tagline: Sincerity is everything. Learn to fake it, and you'll go far.
1: That's right. Being president is a species of performance art, and you have you're on stage all the time, and you have to know how to perform. Now, some people would take that as a mark of insincerity, in that actors aren't really themselves. And I would liken it much more to um, a concert musician or, say, I don't know, a ballet dancer. In that, you can be utterly sincere. Um, but you also have to know how to communicate and you can, if you have great ideas, but can't fulfill the role, then you're simply not going to get what you want. Being president is a role. You have to know how to play the role in addition to all the other stuff that's required for being a good president,
0: such as uh, being a presenter or bringing in, being an executive director. Right. It's a lot yeah. harder than that. <laughs> That's right. No disrespect to Gleaves yeah. the fine work <laughs> he's doing yeah. at no, the Howard oh Center. Gracious. It's yeah. a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> All foreign policy is local. Your tagline for they don't vote in Montevideo.
1: Montevideo. Yes. Well, this has to do with the fact that if you want to understand American foreign policy, you can get about a 90 percent head start on that by understanding local politics, that is American domestic politics. Those of us who study American foreign policy sometimes like to think that American foreign policy is largely responsive to events overseas, and it is to some extent, but no foreign policy is sustainable if it can't generate the domestic support that's necessary behind it. And we certainly saw this with the war in Vietnam. We're seeing it to some extent with the war in Iraq, but this is always the case. Presidents have to be able to mobilize popular support behind their foreign policy initiatives. They can do certain things on their own for a certain amount of time, but unless the popular support is there, then the initiative ultimately fades and fails.
0: Tell us what we're in store for Wednesday.
1: On Wednesday, two more lectures, uh,
2: the finale included. At 10 a.m. at DeVos Center, we're going to have a a talk called Leave Under a Cloud and the Sun is Sure to Shine. And then at 7.30, we're going to have our ultimate uh, presentation. And uh, that's going to be um, also at DeVos Center. Dance with them that brung you. Remember who you work for.
0: That's a quote, isn't it? That's for sure. Gleaves Whitney is who we are speaking with, Executive Director of the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies on the campus of downtown Grand Valley. And, of course, H.W. Brands, our speaker, our our scholar-in-residence on behalf of the Howenstein Center. That man in the White House with your lectures beginning, obviously, less than an hour away. That's for sure. All this on the website, Gleaves?
2: Yes. Please go to www.allpresidents.org. If you want more information about these lectures, uh, you can also call us at 331-2770 for more information. Somebody's there
1: manning the desk.
0: What will it come down to, Bill, when Americans Americans vote war, health care, economy, all the above?
1: What it's really going to come down to is which candidate makes Americans feel best about themselves and about their future. And policy matters, but an emotional connection with the American people, that matters more. That'll That'll trump just about everything else.
0: So how did you come from mathematician to traveling salesman to award winning presidential historian?
1: Oh my, it's a very long story. But to be honest, it's all a matter of trying to extend my classroom. I've felt from the beginning that I'm a teacher and Gleaves gives me the opportunity to come and bring my classroom, bring what I do, to Grand Valley. So it's I'm delighted to be here. It's an honor.
0: How do you know you've done a good job with these residencies?
1: Uh when People come up to me afterwards and ask questions when they email me for days and weeks after I've left. Um, The main thing I'm trying to accomplish is to get people interested. If I can get them asking questions, then they'll find the answers on their own. I don't profess to have all the answers, but if I can spark questions, then I feel I've done a good job.
0: And, of course, uh, Gleaves, our scholar-in-residence, I mean, certainly a kudos to, to you and yours for this uh, longstanding tradition and, and beyond.
2: Well, Bill has always been very gracious to accept the invitations we've extended, and uh, he comes out with this. This guy is so productive. He comes out with a new book almost every year, and because of that, we can hardly keep up with him. We need to have him back to talk about his latest and greatest. Yeah.
0: What page are you on, Andrew Jackson, there? Please. Oh, well,
2: this, this was last year's. Okay, so you're, you, you're <laughs> that, on the right. second, second, right. second we're, round. We're waiting with bated breath now for FDR, which right. I think is going to be very interesting. I mean, I, I can't wait to talk to Bill more about FDR because he was a wartime leader, and, of course, he was a leader during a, a terrible economic downturn. Both of those factors are converging in 2008 in an interesting way, and I think there are going to be some interesting parallels, Bill. Yeah.
1: Well, in fact, uh, yeah, the president we choose this November— is going to have, if he's going to be successful or she's going to be successful, it's going to have to demonstrate some of the skills of FDR. Now one of the things we don't know, and we never do know, is how people actually perform as president. They audition when they're candidates, but being on the job is entirely different from being a candidate. And one of the curiosities of American politics and American political culture is that we tend to select our candidates for a certain set of reasons. And then they have to fill the job, and that job makes other demands on them. So, it's very rare that you can really assess a candidate, a non-incumbent candidate, and tell what kind of president he or she will make. When Franklin Roosevelt was elected in 1932, it was widely thought that here was somebody who had a genial personality, but was something of a lightweight, and quite possibly wouldn't be up to the demands. In fact, Franklin Roosevelt became the greatest modern American president. But nobody really had any confidence that that was gonna be the case when he was elected. In fact, even his closest friends and some of his greatest supporters were amazed at how he grew in office. And that's, I guess, a final secret of presidential success, is your ability to grow in office. It happens to just about everybody, but some people do a lot better job of it than others.
0: Some people's hair grows white, well, you know, from the beginning they to the end. They all turn gray. The
1: only person, there of all the presidents, the only one who got younger in office was Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt just loved being president. And the burden of office sat very lightly on his shoulders he never had more fun in his life than when he was president and theodore roosevelt had fun in just about every aspect of his life but for every other president you can see them visibly age and we do because of course we we watch them every day they're part of our lives I mean, take the current president george w bush if you look back now on what he looked like in two thousand he's an entirely different man well of course it's been almost eight years and these are eight years of in anybody's life you change but we watch them change before our very eyes. They, Very typically, they're elected when they're not quite turning gray or just a little bit gray, and then they go gray. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is an old man. We remember him when he was a kid, the kid governor of Arkansas. So all this stuff plays out in front of our eyes. It's a remarkable story.
0: I'm thinking there are biographies out on uh, President Roosevelt. What will make yours stand out?
1: Well, I like to think that I will tell the story better than other people have told it. The other thing is that I'm paying much more attention to Roosevelt as a wartime leader. Nearly all the biographers of Franklin Roosevelt were or are New Dealers themselves or liberals who really imagine that they would have been New Dealers had they been alive during Roosevelt's era. And they come at Franklin Roosevelt from the Great Depression side, from the domestic policy side. Now I don't understate that at all, but I pay a good deal more more attention to Roosevelt as a wartime leader because as I argue in the book, this is what made all the difference for Franklin Roosevelt, both as president during his time and for his historical reputation. If not for the outbreak of war in Europe in 1939, Franklin Roosevelt would have been a two-term president. And his first two terms would have been judged a modest success at best. And in fact, the New Deal programs that survived into 1940, several of them probably would would have been at severe risk, had he been succeeded by a Republican. The Republicans had nominally accepted aspects of the New Deal, but their hearts weren't in it. And those programs, Social Security is the best one, uh, best example, because as of 1940, very few people were getting anything out of Social Security. They had been paying into Social Security since 1936. It would have been fairly easy for unsympathetic Republicans to begin to dismantle Social Security. Now, the, the quirk of fate... The outbreak of war in Europe allowed Roosevelt to be elected a third time and then a fourth time. And then it was Harry Truman's good luck to get elected in 1948. The result was that the Democratic hold on the White House, the hold of the New Deal on American life, had 12 years more than it normally would have been expected to have. So by 1953, when the Republicans finally gained control of the White House, Social Security now has a constituency of tens of millions of people who have built their lives around the expectation that they will have these federal pensions and so hmm. this odd circumstance of Hitler deciding to take over Europe allowed Roosevelt to stay in the White House longer and it allowed Roosevelt's historical reputation to rise far beyond what it would have been otherwise and I devote the bulk of the book to that part of Roosevelt's hmm. career.
0: Does your book have a title?
1: Yes, Traitor to His Class
0: Traitor to His Class, look for it uh, where all fine books are sold eventually You bet Leaves Final comments on the rundown of how you're keeping Dr. Brands busy.
2: Well, we're just looking forward to all six of these talks, starting today at 10 o'clock in the DeFoss campus and then downtown. And then uh, tonight at the Ford Museum Auditorium at 7.30 is second talk. And then tomorrow, two talks at 9 and 2.30. And then Wednesday, two talks at 10 and 7.30. Please go to allpresidents.org for the details. We're really
1: looking forward to these.
0: I bet you'll get fed in between.
1: Oh, I think I probably will.
0: (laughs) More information, uh, allpresidents.org? That's correct. And where do we find out more about you?
1: hwbrands.com.
0: Gentlemen, enjoy your day and your residence, scholar residence in in West Michigan. Thank you very much. Take care of you. You're welcome.